Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. All right. Well, today we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 12. And Mark chapter 12 is a continuation of a conversation that began back in chapter 11. You might remember towards the end of chapter 11, where Jesus famously cleared out the temple. Remember that? He was angry because the money changers were keeping people from worshiping God. So the Pharisees, they get wind of this table-turning episode, and they come to Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things, they ask him. And who gave you authority to do this? So high drama has now hit the temple courts with Jesus's expression of anger. But now he's being confronted by the religious leaders. And you might remember that Jesus essentially answers their question with a question, and they don't want to answer his question. So Jesus, as is typical with him, he begins to tell them a story. And the stories that Jesus told were parables. And the word parable is kind of a weird, unusual word. We don't use much in our culture today. But a parable, according to this one definition, is a short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. I like to think of them as short stories that are intended to provoke our imagination. And the reason why Jesus told parables is because he knows that we as people, we love a good story. That was the case then, that's the case now. We love a good story that causes us to lean in. We want to be captured by the plot. We want to identify with the characters. We we love to hate the villains, and we love to love the good guys. And we never tire of the they lived happily ever after ending. That's why we enjoy reading books. It's why we go to movies, because we love a good story. Now, parables, they usually carried with them a meaning that oftentimes the listener didn't understand on the surface. Now, today's parable is an interesting parable in that it's one of judgment. So it's not a, it's not a feel-good message, um, and it could very well be the last parable of Jesus's life. And we will see that it's directed toward the religious leaders of the day. And they did understand the meaning. There was no beating around the bushes with this one. It's called the parable of the tenants. Sometimes it's been known as the parable of the vine dressers. And it's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, I should point out that uh, the main characters and who they represent, just so we can understand who is doing what in the parable. So in this parable, the landowner is God, the vineyard is Israel and its people, 
The servants are Israel's prophets. The tenants are the religious leaders. And the landowner's son, of course, is Jesus himself. So I know that was kind of a long setup as we get into our text, but I feel like it's good to have a better understanding of the context around it. So keep these descriptors in mind as we read, all right? And also, this passage in Mark happens during the last week of Jesus's life. Some scholars believe it happened on Tuesday of Holy Week, just so you wouldn't know where it fits in chronologically. All right, let's begin reading Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. What we see here in the first part of the of the parable is an illustration of the goodness of God. Again, like the parable of the sower in the seed, this is a parable that the first century listener would have totally understood. Remember again, this parable is a continuation of the conversation that began in chapter 11. So uh, his audience, Jesus's audience, are chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Listening to Jesus are the religious elite of the day. And being an agrarian culture, they understood this landowner-tenant relationship, as many people at the time rented out the land that they owned. And it's not any different than uh, many uh, circumstances in our culture today. We have farmers that rent out their land uh, so that people can graze cattle and, and so forth. But somewhere in this landowner-renter relationship, there must have been a deal struck. A contract was entered into where the landowner would collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. And as this, uh, this audience of educated religious leaders were listening to Jesus talking, they would have immediately thought back to the similarities between what Jesus was saying and what the prophet Isaiah said some 700 years earlier. We read, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hooed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Very similar language, isn't it? Isaiah was also writing about the goodness of God. And God's goodness is one of his divine attributes. And we see his goodness displayed in the first part of the parable where we notice how the landowner had gone to great lengths to ensure that the vineyard would be successful. He secured it with a wall as a means of keeping all the bad guys out. He dug a pit for the wine press so that they could process the grapes, and he built a watchtower, providing yet another added layer of security. So think of it as a turnkey vineyard for these farmers to lease. And this parable 
it sort of serves as a, a kind of a Cliff Notes version of God's goodness displayed all throughout the entire Old Testament. Where God, as we read, we know that God rescued his people, the Hebrews, by taking them out of slavery to the Egyptians. And he gave them a land that was flowing with milk and honey. He gave them laws and commandments, parameters, walls, if you will, were put in place. But we know that the Hebrews strayed, right? They took their eyes off of the good things that God had provided for them, and they wanted what their neighbors had. Disobeying the second commandment, they began to worship idols because that's what their neighbors did. And they desired to be ruled over by an earthly king again because that's what their neighbors had. And God was like, oh no, you're not gonna like that. You're not gonna like an earthly king. An earthly king will take the crops that you planted. An earthly king will take your money in taxes. An earthly king will lord over you in ways that you do not desire. But despite the Hebrews' willful disobedience, through it all, because of his goodness, God would send prophets to warn his people and tell them to repent and return to him. That's our God, a good God, one who wants nothing but the best for you and for me. The second point, if you're following along in the outline uh, for you to jot down, is in this parable we notice the patience of God. Let's keep reading verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. What we can uh, sort of distill from this is that the, the landowner, you'd have to agree, is a pretty patient guy, right? He's a pretty patient guy in that he doesn't immediately retaliate when he hears about the terrible treatment his servants have been receiving. Remember, again, who is it that the landowner represents? Who is it? God. That's right, God. So just as the landowner is patient, so is God patient. And we're reminded of God's patience all throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Exodus, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Numbers, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Back to Psalms again, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The minor prophet Nahum, he says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. What do you think these passages tell us about God? Tells us that he's slow to anger and abounds in love. God is patient. Even if we jump over to the New Testament, we read about the reason for God's patience. 
As Paul writes to the church of Rome, it says that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And then in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's patience with us is never to be mistaken as affirmation of our sinful behavior, but instead is evidence of his love and grace that he extends to each and every one of us. Theologian Wayne Grudem, he says this, God's mercy is his goodness toward those in distress. His grace is his goodness toward those who deserve only punishment, and his patience is his goodness toward those who continue to sin over a period of time. Isn't that the truth? Each and every one of us who proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior are evidence of God's patience. Your story is really a story of how God extended his patience personally to you. Because all of us at some point in our lives were far away from God. And over time, through sermons and people and songs and circumstances, God drew us, he drew us to himself. Some of us, it took longer than others, but that's okay. All of us can testify of the patience of God. You know, I also find it interesting in this parable how the anger of the tenants got progressively worse toward each servant who came to collect. Why is that? I mean, the tenants, they didn't build the vineyard. They weren't the ones who bought the land. They didn't put in the wine press or build the watch tower. So why are these guys acting so hostile toward the servants who came to collect? Well, it could be that the tenants had forgotten the contract that, was, that they had agreed upon. The vineyard owner uh, allowed them to work in his vineyard, after all. And all that he asked was to collect a small portion of the fruit. It could also be that their anger increased because they were further reminded of the fact that they did not own the vineyard and that they needed to pay rent. And after all, nobody likes to pay a mortgage or rent, right? It could be that there's simply a power play happening here. They didn't want to pay what was owed. They wanted to keep the crops, which meant they could keep more money. Whatever the reason was for mistreating the servants, and who are the servants again? The servants are the prophets. That's right. This was the same mistreatment that happened to God's prophets. The writer of Acts tells us, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute. They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. It's important for us to remember that all throughout Jewish history, prophets were summoned by God to share a particular message with the community of people. The organization Jews for Jesus, they say that the prophets were the watchdogs 
of Israel's conscience. While the Torah instructed in what to do, people often fell short or worse. So the prophets reminded Israel of the Torah, called them to repentance, and in addition told of what would happen to the nation in the future, judgment for sin. But hope for the future if the people return to God. Remind, repent, return. This is one of the rhythms we find in the prophets. Now, like a lot of things in scripture, there isn't total agreement among scholars about how many prophets there were. The number ranges between 16 and 48. But because of the message that they brought, prophets usually weren't the most popular guys in town. I mean, they were the last guy you would invite to your dinner party because they were always bringing messages from God that people needed to repent and turn from their sins. And of course, repenting is a really hard thing to do, isn't it? And it's something that not many people want to do. And because of the scorn that prophets received upon delivering their message, the writer of Hebrews writes about the end that many of the prophets faced. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. It's an understatement to say that being a prophet was a tough gig. But prophets further illustrated the patience of God. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 6, he had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. The third point this parable illustrates is the judgment of God. The tenant farmers, they assumed that if they killed the son, they could acquire the vineyard. See, in Palestine at the time, a piece of land could be possessed lawfully by whoever claimed it first if it was ownerless property. These guys thought with the son showing up that the owner must be dead. But the son, of course, represents who? Jesus. Jesus, who is the final herald in warning Israel and her leaders to repent and turn to God. Now, the owner of the vineyard in sending his son, surely he knew that the chances of harm coming to his son were high, which takes us to the judgment. See, the religious leaders listening to this parable were obviously threatened 
they, these guys knew that the parable was about them. They were the ones who lusted for power and wanted to maintain their control. And in telling them this story, Jesus points out the numerous chances that God had given Israel's religious leaders to get things right, to repent, and turn to God. Jesus is essentially saying, hey guys, I'm it. I am the son in the story. And although it hasn't happened yet, you guys are the ones who are going to kill me. And as we read in the parable, they killed the son and threw him out of the vineyard. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was beaten and killed outside of the city gates. And despite the obvious overtones to the parable, it all went in one ear and out the other. Because the passage says they were wanting to arrest Jesus. Well, Jesus continues, verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 118. And in the, in, the, in the parable, Jesus moves from this farming analogy to a construction analogy. The cornerstone is the foundation used to build a new structure. And Jesus refers to this psalm to illustrate that he's going to build a new movement, the church of which he is the cornerstone. Jesus is telling the religious leaders that because of their disobedience, they were going to be replaced. And as the final judgment came, Jesus took the authority of the religious leaders and transferred that to his 12 apostles so they could go and build the church. Okay, so what does all this mean for us today, right? The last point for you to jot down is this parable is a reminder of the love of God. A favorite movie of mine is the film Forrest Gump. The film depicts the many winsome ways Forrest kind of haphazardly fell into some key historic moments in American history. But throughout the film, we see the unrequited love Forrest has for his childhood sweetheart, Jenny. His love for her is wholesome and pure, and he longs to be with her. And as the story unfolds, we see Jenny time and time again leave the innocent love and affection of Forrest and go chase after other things. We know that she was running away from childhood trauma. And in her running, she goes on to pursue adventure and drugs and music and men. And the whole time, what she was really looking for was right in front of her in the form of Forrest Gump. Now, I hope you don't find it heresy for me to compare God to Forrest, but there are parallels for sure. Because throughout her history, Israel, Israel's people and her leaders were going after other things that they thought would bring them fulfillment, things other than the one true love of God. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis 
where he writes, God's love is not wearied by our sins and is relentless in its determination that we be cured at whatever cost to us or to him. This determination is clearly evident throughout the scriptures where we read about God as the pursuer of man. Why does God pursue man time and time again? From pursuing Adam and Eve in the garden to Moses in a burning bush to Jonah and a large fish and all of the prophets in between, God went to great lengths and goes to great lengths to pursue people because you and I have inherent value and worth to him. He pursues you because he loves you. So, this parable is actually a reflection of your story and mine. And a decision is required for all of us to make. How do you, how do I respond to God's love? Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in community. God, we're mindful that what we're doing right now, many followers of yours cannot do around the world. God, we pray now for the persecuted church that you would be with our brothers and sisters around the world, that you would grant them your comfort and your peace, that you would continue to embolden them. We thank you, God, for your word as it's holy and it's true. Jesus, thank you so much for being a gifted storyteller. Thank you for this parable today as it's a great reminder that you are a good God, that you're a patient God. At times, you are a God of judgment. And more than anything, we thank you that you're a God who loves us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.